I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 3, What Was the State of the Art in Shakespeare's Theatre? None of the theatres of Shakespeare's time still stands, so we cannot be certain about many details of their form and operation. But many scholars have worked at recovering information about them based on documents, drawings, and a lot of conjecture. Here we'll address the main points agreed upon by most scholars that are essential to understanding the plays themselves. The most important single fact to remember about Shakespeare's theater is that people did not then say, let's go see a play, as we would say, let's go see a movie. They usually said, let's go hear a play. Why? Because the main medium of experience for the plays of Shakespeare's time was speech, not sight. When the dying Hamlet at Act 5, Scene 2, Line 334, says to the shocked courtiers, You that look pale and tremble at this chance, he is telling the actors how to play the moment, but he is also telling us what we are to imagine the courtiers doing, whether or not the actors playing them are in fact trembling and looking pale. Because of Hamlet's words, the audience members feel the courtiers to be shocked and frightened at the sudden deaths they have just witnessed, as the audience itself has. In today's theater, and even more so in a movie, we usually require the actors playing shocked people to look pale and tremble. If they don't, we accuse the production of lacking realism. But in Shakespeare's time, that literalism was achieved mostly through the words. Of course, if the actors could actually tremble and look pale, so much the better. All the nonverbal workings of Shakespeare's theater, sets, props, movement, sounds, and so on, were additions and supports to the speeches. Though Shakespeare's theater often provided spectacle and loud noises and fireworks that the Elizabethans loved, the greatest special effects of his theater happened in the words, which are enough to do the trick. That's why there are so many speeches in a Shakespeare play and so few stage directions. Plays in Shakespeare's day were performed in three kinds of theaters. The first kind was the various banquet halls belonging to the court, to the houses of nobility, to the universities, and to the four inns of court, the law colleges of London, Gray's Inn, Middle Temple, Inner Temple, and Lincoln's Inn. Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors was performed at Gray's Inn in 1594, and Twelfth Night at Middle Temple in 1602. The second kind was the private theatres in London proper, Blackfriars, Whitefriars, Paul's, Phoenix, and Porter's Hall. These were large rooms indoors, set up with stages and lit with candles and lamps. Their actors and singers were boys rather than adult professional men, and the plays they performed tended to be of an academic sort. You can get an idea of the rivalry between the private and public theatre companies from Hamlet's conversation with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in Act Two, Scene Two of the first folio text of Hamlet. Shakespeare mostly wrote for the third kind of theater, the public theaters. These were large, open-air, round or polygonal buildings made of timber and finished with lime and plaster. In Henry V, the chorus in the prologue to Act One describes the physical theater as this wooden O and this cockpit meaning not an airplane pilot's seat, obviously, 
but an arena for gamecock fighting. The public theaters were located in areas called the Liberties, outside the jurisdiction of the City of London. The theater and the curtain were north of the city, the Rose, the Swan, and the Globe were on the south bank of the Thames. The actors in these theaters were adult professional men. There was seating galleries for audience members who could afford it, and a large open space in the center, called the Pit, where the groundlings stood by to hear the play. The probably three stories of galleries were covered with a thatched roof, but the pit was open to the sky. Sunshine, or lack of it, was all the lighting. The stage was a wooden platform about five feet off the ground and about 27 feet deep and over 40 feet wide, thrust out into the center of the pit from one edge of the circle or polygon and resting on pillars or scaffolding underneath. Behind it, was a dressing area called the tiring house, think of the word attire, and the players made their exits and entrances through doors to the right and left at the back of the stage, or through a curtain opening to the inner stage at the center back. There was a trap door opening into the space under the stage that Hamlet at Act 1, Scene 5, Line 151, metaphorically calls the cellarage, the literal name for the place where the actor playing the ghost supposed to be moving within the earth, would have said, Swear. In some of the theaters, the galleries above the stage at the back may have been used for spectators, for musicians, or for upper story scenes, like the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet. Above the stage, resting on the back wall and on two pillars or columns toward the front of the stage, was a roof called the heavens, painted blue for the sky, with images of the sun, moon, and stars, and of the signs of the zodiac. Above the heavens, and possibly above the tiring house too, was a room with a trapdoor and machinery for lowering things or people to the stage or raising them from it. This room could also be used for storing props and for sound effects. A cannonball dropped and rolled across its floor made thunder. The overall size of the theater isn't known for sure, but according to Johannes de Witt, the Swan Theater could hold 3,000 people. Arend von Buchel's copy of Johannes de Witt's drawing of the Swan Theater in 1596 is our best visual source of authentic information about the Elizabethan public theater. From the contract to build the Fortune Theater, which was to be square but based upon the globe, we infer that the latter, too, was more elaborate than the drawing of the swan would suggest, perhaps including Baroque arches, pilasters, trompe l'oeil painting, and bright cloth hangings, all to satisfy the Elizabethans' love of spectacle. Except for a black curtain at the back for tragedy and a multicolored one for comedy, the decorated architecture of the theater was the only set. Various movable set pieces could be brought on, such as a bed to indicate a bedroom, or some potted plants to indicate a forest. One of the columns might serve for a hiding place. The curtain covering a rear entrance could be pulled back to reveal the stabbed Polonius in Hamlet or the snoring Falstaff in Henry IV, Part One. The realism of the setting, once again, was created through the words. Properties, by contrast, were numbered among the most valuable possessions of any theater company, along with their plays and their costumes. 
Shakespeare's props included a lion skin, for snug to wear in the Pyramus and Thisbe scene in A Midsummer Night's Dream, a skull for Hamlet to contemplate, dishes and utensils for Petruchio to toss about in The Taming of the Shrew, a vial for Juliet to drink from, a map for King Lear to point to in Carving Up England, a chess set for Ferdinand and Miranda to play with in The Tempest, swords, daggers, shields, an imitation royal crown, a few movable trees or shrubs for garden or forest scenes, and assorted baskets, chests, cloths, and musical instruments. There was also a throne, a great chair probably fixed upon a platform to indicate the seat or chair of state of the ruler. By far the greatest expense of the public theater company was its costumes, which were as striking and colorful as possible, including some hand-me-downs from court. Elizabethan costumes were generally contemporary in style, not what we would call historically accurate. However, they could be elaborately decorated with symbolic or allegorical elements corresponding to conventional Elizabethan ideas about the type of character wearing them, whether historical or imaginary. A Roman soldier or hero would wear a breastplate and a plumed helmet and carry a sword or spear. An oriental potentate would be dressed in baggy pants and carry a curved sword called a scimitar. A monk would be dressed in a robe and hood called a cowl. The airy spirit Ariel might have worn a blue costume decorated with feathers. Actors in Shakespeare's company were professionals. Some, when they were young, had worked in private theaters, where all the actors were boys. Others might have got their start in the public theater in children's roles or female roles. In either case, they made their living by performing on the stage, some for pay, and some, like Shakespeare himself, as partners in the acting company who earned a share of the profits. Acting companies were associations of actors under the patronage either of royalty or of a member of the nobility. Actors who invested money in the company to buy costumes, props, and plays became shareholders. Some owned whole shares and some partial shares. The shareholders would pick one of their company to serve as business manager and would hire additional actors and apprentices, a bookkeeper who served as prompter and holder of the prompt book, which I'll mention again in a moment, a tireman in charge of costumes and props, a stage keeper, the janitor, and musicians. The shareholding actors themselves were in charge of play production, buying or commissioning plays, casting, tutoring hired actors and apprentices, and so on. The style of acting was conventional. Though Shakespeare's actors strove to be as convincing as they could, they were not trained in the much later Stanislavski-style method acting, trying to feel the part or become the character in some personally emotional way. Their job was to learn the words and gestures and movements and to make them clear. Once again, it was mainly the words, more than the physical expression of realistic emotions or movements, that carried the meaning to the audience. To us, Shakespeare's actors would probably have sounded like speechmakers instead of living people. What his audience would have considered effective dramatic speech, we would probably find too declamatory, stilted, or histrionic. Of course, his audience might find modern realistic actors to be the opposite, mumbling, artless, and prosaic, 
not more interesting than a gabby neighbor. These differences are functions of the differences in stage conventions that I discussed earlier under universal realism in the third session of chapter one, What's So Great About Shakespeare? But though what seems appropriate to one age might seem overdone or underdone to another, actors in every age are expected to seem natural according to the customs of the time. Even given the more formal acting conventions of Shakespeare's day, there would have been big differences between good and bad actors. Hamlet's speech to the players at the beginning of Act 3, Scene 2, gives the ideal goal for an actor. He needed to be neither too exaggerated nor too tame, but to suit the action to the word, the word to the action, in order to hold as twere the mirror up to nature. Despite the more formal conventions, the best actors of the time would have struck the best critics as being thoroughly natural and convincing. All actors in Shakespeare's time were men or boys. All audience members, male and female, worldly or puritanical, would have considered it shockingly immodest and inappropriate for a woman to show herself on a stage in public. As in the high periods of ancient Greek and Japanese drama, so in the high period of European drama, it was just not done. This means that all Shakespeare's female roles, Juliet, Cleopatra, Rosalind, Ophelia, and the rest, were played by boy actors. Because the acting of women's parts by boys was simply a given of the theater, it would have caused no resentment, gender confusion, or embarrassed tittering in the audience. It was a stage convention, assumed and therefore immediately forgotten when the play began, just as we forget in a movie that the screen is really only two-dimensional, or that a character is being portrayed by an actor whom we have recently seen portraying someone else. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, in Act 1, Scene 2, lines 47 to 48, Shakespeare has Flute, the bellows mender, say about playing the role of Thisbe, Nay, Faith, let not me play a woman, I have a beard coming. No longer a boy, he feels too old to play a woman's part. He may also fear that his age would compromise the realism of the performance. In any case, his reluctance has nothing to do with worry about his masculinity. For the Elizabethan audiences, a boy actor's playing a female role was normal. It was, therefore, for the purposes of the play's meanings, a non-issue. Jokes could be made about it, as in the epilogue of As You Like It, where coming out of character the boy actor says, If I were a woman. But such jokes did not generally imply what we would call gender-bending sexual innuendos. There were no directors in Shakespeare's theater. In fact, the direction of plays by a single individual did not occur until the late 19th century, with Georg II, Duke of Saxe-Meiningen, 1826-1914. It is difficult for us to imagine the absence of a guiding mind in the effective production of such complex works as Shakespeare's plays, because since the birth of Romanticism in the late 18th century and its spread through the 19th, we have become so used to the idea of art proceeding from an individual person's imagination. Even in the collaborative world of theater and film, we believe in the necessity of a director to interpret the script and to make the final product correspond to his or her idea. 
But in Shakespeare's day, as in other times and places, collaborators on play productions, as in many other arts, were in such thorough agreement about the conventions and the essential meanings of the works they were producing that they would have found the notion of needing a director ridiculous. They would have felt about a play director the way we might feel at a baseball game if a director tried to tell each of us how to sing the national anthem, or the way a surfer might feel if someone suggested that a director on the shore should tell him when to catch a wave and how long to ride it. The actors, or at least the shareholders, knew what they were doing. The words of the play and the stage directions seemed to have given them all the direction they needed. We have two Shakespearean examples of how a shareholder of the theater company might instruct his fellow actors. One occurs in the passage from Hamlet quoted above, Act 3, Scene 2, and the other in A Midsummer Night's Dream in the scenes in which the so-called mechanicals, meaning the physical laborers of the city, including Flute, whom I quoted, are rehearsing the Pyramus and Thisbe play within the play. Hamlet gives a lecture on the nature of acting and tries to inspire the actors to make their performance as realistic as possible. He speaks with authority not because he is directing the play, but because he is their superior, both in rank and in education. He himself recognizes their superiority in moving audiences with the power of speech. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Peter Quince the carpenter gives out parts and tries to rein in one actor who wants to do everything and encourage another who is shy about doing anything. Neither Hamlet nor Peter Quince thinks he has to interpret the play for the actors. Part of the hilarity of the Midsummer Night's Dream scenes lies in the mechanical's ignorance of the stage conventions that the real actors and the real audience of Shakespeare's play all took for granted. The prompt book, still in our time called simply The Book, was a fair, meaning a final draft, copy of the play used for rehearsals and probably kept in the tiring house during performances. It was the theater-ready version of the play in which the bookkeeper would have written additions to the minimal stage directions of the playwright, noted cuts, revisions, or additions to the speeches, clarified speech headings where necessary, and made notations about which actors were doubling in which roles, where props were called for, and so on. It was also the version of the play that was submitted to the Master of the Rebels to be censored before the play was finally allowed for performance. The bookkeeper was in charge of the prompt book and served as the prompter, making sure the actors were where they needed to be with the right props at the right time, and, if necessary, prompting them with forgotten lines. And since no actor would have a full script of the play, the bookkeeper was also responsible for providing each actor the long scroll containing all his own lines and cue lines, then and still today called aside. In addition to specific dances called for by the texts of plays, as part of the play itself, as in Much Ado About Nothing, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest, or at the end, as in A Midsummer Night's Dream and Much Ado About Nothing, it was customary to finish the performance of any play with a dance. The music for these dances would be in the form either of the stately pavan or of the sprightly galliard.
Who made up Shakespeare's audience? Occasionally royalty, when Queen Elizabeth and later King James ordered performances to be presented at court. In the public theatres, the audience might include nobility, gentility, and commoners. There were lawyers, court functionaries, churchmen, tradesmen, craftsmen, farmers, soldiers, sailors, tailors, innkeepers, purveyors of goods, servants, and so on. For the comfort of the audience, there were hawkers of food and drinks, and there were also prostitutes and pimps and the occasional pickpocket, which they would have called a cut purse. Not only was Shakespeare's audience made up of a variety of sorts of people, but those people could all be entertained in a variety of ways. In our time, we tend to think of the audiences for different kinds of shows as generally different sorts of people. We imagine that those who attend rock concerts don't generally attend the opera, and those who watch reality TV don't turn into masterpiece theater, and of course vice versa. But on any given day, not only was Shakespeare's audience very mixed in itself, but any member of it might just as soon choose to attend a bear baiting, a short walk away, as to attend a play. In the bear baiting ring, a wild bear was tied to a stake by the neck, and bull mastiff dogs were set to attack it. People bet on whether the bear would kill the dogs before the dogs could kill the bear. We might see Shakespeare's plays as highbrow entertainment and bear baiting as definitely lowbrow. But apart from differences in individual personal taste, Elizabethan audiences in general might be just as pleased to attend a bear baiting or a bull baiting or a public hanging as a Midsummer Night's Dream or Hamlet. This variety in the audience partly explains why the same play might contain all kinds of content, deep spiritual insights, romance, low physical comedy, and all levels of language, formal poetry, barbs of wit, coarse prose. There was something for everyone. Yet overarching the variety of particular appeals to particular groups, the whole play also managed to appeal to everyone in the audience. There was one group that was not pleased with any public entertainments, including plays. They were the Puritans. We have a variety of examples of Puritan preachers petitioning the government to close down the theaters which they accused of presenting immoral plays and of being hotbeds of lewdness, drunkenness, prostitution, impiety, and heresy. For religious and political reasons, they were supported in this by the city government. Hence, the public theatres were not allowed within the city limits of London, but were forced to locate outside in the liberties mentioned earlier. Fortunately for us, the theatres were defended by the Queen and her Privy Council, and many playwrights got away with satirizing the Puritans. As usual, Shakespeare avoided direct criticism, even of the Puritans, but you can get a sense of his opinion of the hypocritical moralism and austerity that many associated with them in his characterization of Malvolio in Twelfth Night. Ben Jonson more directly satirized the type in a character called Zeal of the Land Busy in his play Bartlemy Fair, or we would pronounce it Bartholomew. In general, performances were more interactive than we are used to. Actors in character would often address the audience directly, 
and the audience might respond out loud to that direct address, as well as to slapstick action, rousing speeches, witty repartee, and stage violence. A play that did not sufficiently reward the audience's attention might be met with guffaws, verbal abuse, or missiles of bad fruit. Didn't these interchanges with the actors disrupt the play for the audience? In extreme cases, they surely did, and actors then as now would complain about poor audiences. At the same time, Shakespeare's theater could absorb more of such behavior than ours. There are schools of playwrights in our time who, partly to distinguish the live theater from the movie experience, strive to make plays more interactive with their audiences. But in general, in the modern realistic theater, we require a play environment to have minimal distractions. Because we have higher demands for realism in our plays, external noise threatens to break the illusion for us. One beep from a cell phone in the theater disrupts our focus. Also, because we are generally so overstimulated by the voices all around us, all those salesmen, politicians, preachers, news reporters, talk show hosts, disc jockeys, and, God help us, podcasters, who yak at us nonstop on radio, TV, loudspeakers, computers, and cell phones, it is harder for us to devote full attention and lose ourselves in the speech of anyone. Shakespeare's audience, lacking radio, TV, movies, and internet, was much more captivated by theatrical speech, for which the demands of realism were less stringent and which was the more precious for being rare. Therefore, in general, they were probably less easily distracted. To sum up, the state of the theater in Shakespeare's time was technologically primitive by our standards, but thanks in large part to Shakespeare himself, it was the furthest thing from primitive in the quality of experience it provided its audiences. And it wasn't long after he had arrived in London from Stratford-upon-Avon that Shakespeare had become the Elizabethan theater's most popular playwright. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.